The universe is a vast and fascinating place, full of structure, stars, galaxies, planets, and in some cases, even life. But it wasn't always this way. The universe is only full of this rich structure today because it had time to evolve. Early on, some 13.8 billion years ago, the universe was uniform, hot, dense and rapidly expanding, and it's only evolved to be full of galaxies, stars, planets, and the ingredients for life over a long period of cosmic evolution. But by looking farther and farther away, by looking at all the different properties of the universe farther and farther away we look, we can look back in time, we can learn how the universe grew up, and if we're careful enough, we can even learn details like what it's made of. We have so many different ways to approach it, and this is one of the most wonderful things of all, that we can find that the universe is made not just of the normal matter we know, but of also dark matter and dark energy. How did the universe grow up, and how do we know what it's made of today? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. Each different way that we have of looking at the universe, whether we look at individual galaxies or how galaxies move through space relative to the Hubble expansion of the universe, or how they clump and cluster together in pairs, in threes, in fours, or even greater numbers, can teach us something new. And out there, way beyond the limits of the galaxies we can actually see, there are still signatures coming from the atoms, molecules, and ions in the early universe. It's through methods like these that we can improve our understanding beyond the already impressive understanding we've gained today. And here to help us through this, to bring us up to the frontiers of exploration into the formation of structure in the universe and how we can determine what dark energy truly is, I'm so pleased to welcome to the program Carolina Garcia. Carolina is a PhD candidate at the University of Florida and has gotten master's degrees at University of Florida and also from her home university in Brazil. Carolina, I'm so pleased to have you here and welcome to Starts With a Bang. Hello everyone, I'm very happy to be here and let's talk about the universe and how it's been evolving. You know, this is this is one of the things that I'm really excited about because we get to go into such great detail. If I were to start in my imagination the universe off shortly after the hot big bang, I know that it was seeded with these little tiny, maybe one part in 30,000 density fluctuations that are roughly uniform on all scales. These were the quantum fluctuations that took place during inflation, and they created these little imperfections on all cosmic scales across the universe. Now, on the largest cosmic scales, it takes a long time, even in the expanding universe, for gravitation to begin collapsing these structures because gravity 
only travels, only sends signals at the speed of light. But on smaller cosmic scales, it doesn't take as much time, right? It takes something moving at the speed of light, like the force of gravity, less time to go a short distance than a large distance. So this might mean when I look today at the modern structures that have come about in the universe, um, that there's sort of this transition point, right? On, on the largest cosmic scales, Gravitation is still just slowly growing these cosmic structures. But on smaller cosmic scales, uh, you hit a certain threshold, right? Dense things get dense by a certain amount, and then they start growing much more rapidly. Uh, in 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 our jargon, we call what happens on the large scales where things only grow very slowly, we say that's the linear regime because you can approximate that by, oh, we have the average density and then we have this growth of density on top of it. But on these smaller cosmic scales, things get more complicated than that, right? We we enter what we call the nonlinear regime because that, that approximation of saying, oh, it's just average density plus this basic growth factor, that doesn't work anymore. When we go out and measure the universe, uh, there are some things that we see that we can observe on large cosmic scales, and we can also observe them on small cosmic scales, where we can actually reveal that transition, where where does this linear approximation, where we say, okay, structure only grows slowly and gradually according to this linear trend on some scales, but then on other scales, on these smaller scales, we see that it completely defies that trend, that it, it does something different. Um, so when we, when we go out and make those measurements, what, what do we find and what does it teach us? So when we are studying the large-scale structure of the universe and trying to infer uh, cosmology and understand about the composition of the universe and how it's uh, been evolving throughout the history of the universe, we need to assume some things. And uh, when we are observing the large-scale structure, we have to assume a certain scale at which um, if we go uh, smaller than this scale, we may find problems in applying uh, just linear perturbations. And this is not something super uh, set in stone, uh, but we usually assume uh, eight megaparsec over little h spheres, uh, let's say, uh, which is, I don't know in light years how much this would be. Eight megaparsecs is about, about 25 million light years. Okay, so this is much bigger than even galaxy clusters. So you, uh, galaxy clusters and superclusters, uh, uh, not even super superclusters yet, but galaxy clusters are the the biggest structures that we know that are virialized. So they are in cer uh, a certain equilibrium that we can call it a, a, a stable system. Uh, if we go beyond these uh, galaxy clusters, uh, we we don't have yet structures that have reached this equilibrium. Um, and if we look at structures that are these eight megaparsec uh, scale structures, um, we have if 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 we're not going below that number, we can 
we can pretty much trust that we are in this KO, that we can treat this um, perturbations as, uh, as linear. So we can apply these uh, physics, this uh, cosmological analysis in a way that it's much simpler than if you are trying to look at smaller structures. I see. So if we're looking at like the big, big cosmic web, like the giant filaments that exist between galaxy clusters or the uh, the streams of gas that uh, that are sort of flowing on these uh, 100 million light year scales, or we look at the super clusters, which, you know, we know aren't actually gravitationally bound. That's that's something where we can say, look, we can do this simple linear approximation for the growth of structure, and that matches up very well with what we observe, right? You predict it, you observe it, matchup is great. But if you look at smaller scales, right, things like individual galaxies or even galaxy clusters, you call them virialized, and that means that they're gravitationally bound, that that any object within it is going to orbit within it and probably has multiple times over the history of the universe, um, and that there's going to be a balance within this structure between its overall kinetic energy and its overall potential energy. I think that's, that's the more technical definition of virialization. Exactly. Um, so if uh, these are the, the galaxy clusters are these um, the biggest systems that we see this balance between the kinetic energy and the potential energy, the gravitational energy. Right. And so if you go out and you observe these structures, right, what can you do to sort of determine, oh, this this linear approximation, this first order simplistic evolution of growth of structure, uh, it's not going to work anymore, right? What I observe on these smaller cosmic scales is actually going to be much richer. It's going to have much denser over-densities and much more under-dense under-densities than, uh, than I would have predicted with this simple linear sort of approximation. It's basically like saying you get like a runaway effect where if I if I look at, you know, what's the density here on planet Earth relative to the average density, right? We're something like 10 to the 30 times denser than the cosmic average. And if I went to intergalactic space outside of the local group, maybe like a quarter of the way to the Virgo cluster, but still in total intergalactic space, I would find that the density there is very low. It's it's much less than the cosmic average, maybe only like 20% of the cosmic average. And is this is this sort of what we mean by, you know, where where we have sort of this linear regime and this nonlinear regime, that the nonlinear regime we have, you know, these huge overdensities and huge underdensities relative to the cosmic average, but back in the linear regime, it's really only a few percent or maybe a few tens of percents at most. Exactly. Um, because in cosmology, the, uh, you, I think you touch uh, to, in two uh, biggest uh, very important points in cosmology. When we are uh, trying to understand the universe as a whole, we uh, we are assuming 
at least up to now, uh, most of most of the time, you're assuming that the universe is homogeneous and isotropic. So uh, I'm, uh, homogeneous means that everything, or uh, to a certain degree, looks the same everywhere you go. And this is very important uh, when we are talking about like comparing local over density. So, for example, we we can't we can't say that the density here on Earth would be the same as in the middle of the the Virgo um, group, you know. But at the same time, if you consider that the universe, uh, uh, the large scales of the universe, if you're just looking at the, that cosmic web, that if you if you do a Google and search cosmic web, you're gonna see that at at some point you can look at that in a such, such a large scale that you're like, okay, everything here kind of looks the same. And you cannot differentiate between one point and the other, let's say. Um, and isotropic means that whatever direction you're looking at, the universe also looks the same. No, and I think that's actually really brilliant and really powerful. I've I've always viewed homogeneous as being, you know, it's sort of like sampling the cosmic ocean with a with like a cup, right? If I if I had a giant like measuring cup that was um a billion or 10 billion light years on a side and I dipped it into any cosmic volume and pulled out what I got inside, I would find on scales this large, wow, the universe is really, really the same. Like I could dip it into a very dense region with a 10 billion light year wide cup and I can dip it into a very under dense region with a 10 billion light year cup. And I might find the difference between these two regions is only like 0.01% in terms of density. But as I go down to smaller and smaller scales, like, like the scale of a galaxy cluster, now I might find the difference isn't 0.01% the difference between a dense region that was maybe 10 million light years wide and an under dense region that was 10 million light years wide is going to be a difference of like a factor of a thousand like I might have a thousand large Milky Way type galaxies in the really dense regions where you have a massive galaxy cluster and I might only have like one Milky Way sized galaxy in a very underdense region. So I think, like you say, on smaller and smaller cosmic scales, you see these bigger imperfections in the universe. So what can we use that for? What can we say, okay, when I look at where things are no longer uniform, where things have huge differences between where they're dense and clumped or sparse and under-dense, what, what can I use that information to learn about the universe? So uh, we are talking about the large-scale the large structures in the universe, and when we are observing these large-scale structures, there are some things about our universe that we would like to understand. Uh, one of them, for example, is how much matter there is in the universe, um, how much of uh, radiation there is, how much uh, dark energy there is. So there are a lot of things that we would like to learn about the universe. And looking at these large scales really help us doing that. Uh, and one thing that we can measure is not only how much matter there is, but how 
this matter is clumped or how much gravity actually uh, how how was the role of gravity in the evolution history of the universe because one could imagine the same amount of matter in a universe full of um uh, full of galaxies and large scale and uh, large scale structures but much more homogeneous than another universe that you have more clumped uh structures right so the clump this clumping factor is also something that we would like to understand about the, our universe because the more clumped those structures are so the the more that gravity played a role in uh in this scale of eight megaparsec as i said before it means that the more um this actually help us uh understand better about these evolution parameters of the universe right so how structures were formed and how how strong gravity was um so this is something that i've uh, worked on by looking at supernovae and there is a reason for uh, why we look at supernovae but this is another we can talk about this later but i'm not going to enter in this now but we look at these objects which are mainly uh which are simply uh death of stars right so they it's super energetic and when we detect, when we look at the supernovae we can somehow have an idea of how um how uh, what are their peculiar velocities? So what I mean by peculiar velocity is their velocity uh, that is not related to the expansion of the universe, is their uh, intrinsic velocities, and how correlated these velocities are. So this means that, so for example, if you have two supernova that are super close to each other, uh, you can imagine that their velocities are going to be also correlated because they might be falling in the same potential well, in the same a gravitationally bound structure, right? But if they are far away from each other, they're not going to be so connected. But the strength of how correlated they are in these eight megaparsec scales tells us about how much gravity it is in there in that system, in that in that eight megaparsec scale systems, right? So this tells us about how clumped structures are in the universe and allows us to put more constraints on how cosmology uh on the parameters that we want to understand about cosmology i see so are you are you basically saying that look we have these bound structures in the universe and galaxy clusters are really like these largest bound structures that exist but if you look at the galaxies within a galaxy cluster you'll find that not only are they redshifted from us in proportion with the cosmic expansion? But they're also going to be moving around internally inside of this cluster relative to one another. We, we see this, for example, when you look at the Coma Cluster, which is highlighted by two giant bright elliptical galaxies. But you look at these two galaxies at the center of the cluster and you find that relative to each other, it's like one of them moves towards us at about an extra thousand kilometers a second relative to the average velocity of the galaxies there, and the other moves away from us at an average of thousand kilometers a second. So these two galaxies in the same region of space 
have 2,000 kilometers a second difference in their speed from us. So this gives us a measure if we know the cluster is virialized, if we know it's gravitationally bound, this gives us a measure of how much mass is in there, how much uh, total gravitational growth has happened. And if you can measure this for clusters at a bunch of different distances and for clusters of a bunch of different sizes and masses, then we can actually determine, oh, well, this is imprinted initially from very early times. So this can tell us what the ratio of matter to radiation was early on when the universe was growing. This tells us at what scales structure formed with various magnitudes and it tells us because as we look farther back in time we can see a universe that was more dominated by matter and less dominated by dark energy that this actually allows us to infer some powerful information on how the universe grew up yeah um and this is all correct uh, however, the scales that I'm talking about are eight megaparsecs, which inside of this kind of scales, you can fit many galaxy clusters, actually. So what we are actually trying to do is to, because we have to go beyond cluster scales in order to be able to use the, the linear regime, right? And, uh, and to, because even if we're just looking at galaxy clusters, we are actually not yet in this regime. We are in a regime that if you measure the density inside of a cluster and right out outside of the cluster, uh, you're going to measure this difference in, uh, in how much density is inside and outside, right? So we're actually looking at scales that, uh, that have many galaxy clusters. And, and it, but it's exactly what you said. Um, galaxies have their own intrinsic uh, velocities that are actually not intrinsic, but due to the over densities that they are in, which are also related to galaxy clusters, but also the, the big potential wells that they are in that are not actually virialized yet. So you could imagine a cluster of galaxy cluster, a cluster of clusters, <laughs> but which didn't have time to get uh, virialized yet. So get to that state that the the, the kinetic energy is uh, balanced with the potential energy. So, but we are looking at these structures and we are trying to see um, how the, the, the supernova, which are inside of these galaxies, uh, how their velocities correlate with each other so that we can constrain um, how, um, how, the, how, how much clump clumpiness we have in the universe. This is a word that we use actually even for, for this, how much clumpiness we have. Um, and this tells us about how things have been evolving, how structures have been evolving. No, and one of the things I find very exciting about this is we can use multiple independent tracers to measure the same set of properties. For example, when we look at the cosmic microwave background, yes, that's that's all still in the linear regime, but it gives us a theoretical, you know, inference for what should this relationship be between this quantity you talked about, sigma eight and how how fast things grow or how or what that growth factor is uh, we can do the same thing for individual galaxies or clusters of galaxies and we can also do this with supernovae and if we understand the universe correctly 
all four of these methods should give us a consistent answer. But one of the most exciting things to me happens is when you have these multiple independent ways of measuring the same thing and one or more of them doesn't line up with the rest. And that's not a place we are with this particular set of measurements, but that's that's always a really fascinating possibility to me that you can wind up with discovering something new where you expect these multiple independent measurements to all be consistent and sometimes they don't appear to line up. Let me take this moment to acknowledge our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Avenues Online, the virtual campus of Avenues the World School. Avenues Online is an accredited tier one private school designed for students from toddler through 12th grade who want to pursue a world-class education freed from the constraints of a physical school. Learn alongside peers living on six continents and in more than 20 countries with a global faculty leading the way. Learn more at avenues.org slash SWAB. And now, back to our show. So I want to switch gears a little bit because... Um, one of the other ways we can sort of probe how the universe expands and evolves is not just by looking at, you know, these peculiar velocities of supernovae on these relatively large cosmic scales, but we can also look at things like how galaxies are clustered. And this is really fascinating to me because there are huge huge catalogs that we're developing where we are mapping out large volumes of the sky with uh with a variety of ground-based and space-based missions when when i was first learning about this in the early 2000s uh we were using like the 2df and the 6df galaxy redshift surveys uh and then you know we had the sloan digital sky survey we had uh dark energy surveys happening and now we have some really really big um, surveys that we're right on the cusp of gaining. We have the Euclid mission to look forward to. We have the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope at the Vera C. Rubin Observatory. And we have NASA's next upcoming flagship mission after JWST, the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope, which is going to basically have the same capabilities as Hubble as far as its instruments go, except it will be capable of of viewing about a hundred times the area of Hubble. So we're going to get a lot of really deep views of the universe. Um, how can looking at these volumes for both galaxies and galaxy clusters, uh, how can this help teach us about how the universe grew up? Yeah, so one thing that we can do to... Um continue understanding even more about the, the our universe, the composition of the universe, is by looking at galaxies. Uh, we look at these galaxies uh, the same way that we could look at the peculiar velocities of supernova, but now we're not trying to see the velocities of the galaxies, but the positions of the galaxies in the sky. So if we have a map of all the galaxies that we can observe, and we see how their positions are correlated, we can also have an idea of how clumped they are, 
how close they are to each other and how inhomogeneous the universe is, right? And if we look at this in different times of the universe, so we have ways of measuring in what time of the cosmic history these galaxies are coming from, the, the light of these galaxies is coming from. So if we do this kind of measurement of how close to each other, how inhomogeneous the universe was at that specific time in different scales, we can actually constrain how the universe has been evolving and understand about our cosmic history. You know, and this is this is kind of fascinating to me because what you're talking about, about looking at where these galaxies are and where these galaxy clusters are and when they are in cosmic time, um, this is something where what you see is not quite what you get. The very thing you were trying to measure when you talked about supernovae, which is the peculiar velocity or how fast relative to the local cosmic expansion these things are moving through the universe, those effects are still present when we look at galaxies and galaxy clusters. So if you just take these naive measurements of the redshift of the galaxy and infer how far away is it and how fast is it moving, uh, you're going to get a distorted picture of the universe. Uh, we say that you will see two types of features that aren't real, but they will appear in your data. And I love these names. We call them fingers of God and pancakes of God. And... <laughs> Right. And would you like to tell us a little bit about these fingers of God and pancakes of God and why they're not real? I've never heard the pancakes of God, but yeah. Oh, well, maybe maybe you're a maybe it's too long now since Zeldovich died, but Zeldovich pancakes were a big thing and they're they're the counterpart. Uh if you want because you're younger, you can think about Thor from God of Thunder in the Marvel comics and how much he loves eating pancakes and maybe those are pancakes of God. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's very good. Um yeah, so there are, when we're observing galaxies, especially if we're talking about redshift space, inside of galaxy clusters, uh, all galaxies are moving um, in different directions, but we, because we have a line of sight, uh, we end up um, having only the, 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 comp the components of the, the velocities that are somehow either going towards us or going away from us when we are looking in redshift space. So uh, we end up having uh, looking at galaxies and seeing them as these, as all of them are pointing towards us, having this illusion as if all of them are pointing towards us. But when we go to large scale structures, then it's a little different because then in that direction, we, um, we will have an elongation. So it's gonna be the opposite effect. It's not gonna look like they're pointing towards us. It's gonna look like that these structures are actually like pancakes, as you said. So in the other direction, in the other, um, not, not pointing towards us, but, but in a transversal direction, I don't know. Um, because in large scales, we have that um, structures are falling in these, super large potential wells and 
in, in large scales, if you have an object that is behind a certain potential well, this object is going to be blue shifted when it's coming towards us because it's going to be accelerated into this potential well. But if there is another object that is in front of this potential well, but it's falling in the potential well, which is behind it, it's going to end up being red shifted because we're going to see it moving far away from us. So if we have statistically, like if we look at many different objects that have this effect going on them, we are going to see some pancake going on because the, the ob this effect only happens in blue shifting and red shifting of things that are along our line of sight. So what you're, that was good. That was good. That, no, that was super good. And, and here I'm going to try and put it together for you and you can tell me if I've understood this correctly, right? So where you have a galaxy cluster, right? A bound collection of masses, galaxy group, galaxy cluster. If I were to measure all of the different galaxies within that cluster, that's going to make a finger of God because all of those galaxies are located at roughly the same position in space. And they're all going to have roughly the same cosmic expansion or Hubble expansion happening between us and this object. But all the individual galaxies in there are actually moving in three dimensions. And we can detect motion in one of those dimensions, that motion along our line of sight. So the galaxies that happen to be moving towards us at this moment and the galaxies that happen to be moving away from us at that moment, that's going to make them appear over a redshift range in space. So all the galaxies in a cluster, if I plot redshift out versus, you know, brightness or distance or whatever, I'm going to see they make a long finger-like structure because even though they're all in the same physical location in space, some are moving towards us, some are moving away from us, so they're going to occupy a range of redshifts. And that's an artificial finger of God because it points at you no matter where you are. But the opposite of that is going to happen on even larger cosmic scales. For example, let's say I, I have a big clump of mass. Um, what's going to happen around it? Well, the galaxies that are behind it, the galaxies that are behind this cluster, they're actually going to be more distant, but because they're going to be preferentially pulled towards this cluster, they're going to have a peculiar velocity that is blue shifted, that moves towards us. So artificially, these galaxies that are actually more distant are going to be pulled so that they look like they're less red shifted by the cosmic expansion than they actually are. And similarly, galaxies that are closer to us than that cluster are going to be pulled gravitationally backwards into that cluster so they're going to get an extra redshift to them and so these blue shifted more distant galaxies and these red shifted less distant galaxies are all going to get pulled so that they look like they're at that same redshift and that's going to make a false clustering effect that looks like a pancake or like perpendicular to a finger so these fingers and pancakes of god are things that will appear if we only measure the redshift. But 
if we use this extra information we know about how the universe clumps and clusters and how to disentangle peculiar velocity from cosmic redshift, then what we can do is translate from, oh, well, we observed redshift, but when we plotted things, we saw these fake fingers and pancakes. If we could translate that into what we call real space by understanding the peculiar velocities of things in the universe, then we can make the fingers and pancakes go away and actually map out the universe as it really is. Perfect. Yes, exactly. And uh, this was something that I was very confused when I started working with this is, is like, okay, but why does this happen? Why does the pancake factor, uh, uh, the pancake effect um, happens in large scales? And why doesn't it not work in smaller scales? What makes the smaller scales have the finger of God and not like a pancake effect also? And this is because inside of galaxy clusters, we have all these galaxies which are moving with this velocity dispersion. Um, and we can even say that they are all like moving in a very random way inside of these galaxy clusters. And they have very a, a lot of different components to their velocities, right? Some of them are like not many, uh, not many components, like two components, let's say, but uh, if, they are, if they are going diagonally from, uh, uh, I don't know, towards uh, southwest, I don't know, something like that, uh, if you're observing them, we are only going to see the component that is uh, a longer line of sight. So because there is this randomness, uh, this, uh, this dispersion in, the, in, the, in their velocities, and they are all moving to all different places, but we can only see the, the component that is a longer line of sight, we end up seeing these fingers of God. Why is when we're looking the, to the large scale structures, uh, we don't actually have this factor of like a lot of galaxies just randomly going everywhere. We are actually looking at these uh, more, let's say, um, linear regime that we are just looking at objects that are falling in these potential wells and are blue shifted and red shifted. Now, that's absolutely right. I, I love that explanation because you're bringing up two important points. And one is within a galaxy cluster or even outside of a galaxy cluster, all of these objects are really moving in all three dimensions. They're moving towards or away from us, but they're also moving, you know, what you would see as left or right or up or down to whatever direction you look at. But you can't measure how fast they're moving up and down or left to right because the cosmic distances and cosmic times for motion are just too great. We can't see that on human lifetimes. But line of sight towards or away that gets imprinted in the redshift or blue shift which leads to the other point you said which is this goes back to is your object virialized are these things gravitationally bound to the point where they're basically swarming around their center of mass or are you sort of on some larger cosmic scale where things are just sort of moving towards the biggest overdense clump of matter nearby or moving away from the most severely underdense clump of matter nearby? And that's why on these larger cosmic scales, bigger than galaxy clusters, you get the pancakes, but on scales of galaxy clusters, groups, and smaller, you get the fingers. Yes, exactly. <laughs>
Well, very good. Very good. So one of the things I know is imprinted in the structure of the universe is sort of the ratio between normal matter and dark matter and the ratio of matter to radiation and also encoded in that is how much time has passed since the big bang has occurred to the object we're observing and also encoded in that is how much has the universe expanded from when that light was emitted to when it's observed um all of these things together can teach us a rich amount of information about what is actually in the universe and how is it behaving. Um, you know, we know we have this standard picture where the universe is about 68% dark energy, about 27% dark matter, about 5% normal matter, and about 0.01% of photons. Um, and that all adds up to about 100%. Um, how does measuring how galaxies cluster, how galaxies and galaxy clusters are correlated relative to one another in space, how does that information help us reconstruct what the universe is made of or how the universe has evolved over its history? Yeah, we can use these galaxies, the, the position uh, of the position of the galaxies that we are looking at in the sky um, to understand about different cosmological parameters. And we do that by, so for instance, what, something very cool that we can do with that is by looking at the correlation between the, their positions as we talked before. And uh, if we take pairs of galaxies, for example, we call this the two-point correlation function. So you're basically looking at uh, how how the position of the galaxies uh, correlate in different scales. In practice, this would mean that you point at a specific galaxy and then you draw a sphere around it or a circle around it and you see how many galaxies you find around it in this radius. And then you increase the radius and then you try to find how many galaxies is in this radius and then you increase the radius again and you see how many galaxies is in this radius. And you do this for a lot of different galaxies. So not only changing the radius, but also changing the, the, the center galaxy, the central galaxy. And you do uh, statistics of this and you see how much over or how much uh, correlation there is in different scales. And this is something very cool because we, what we see is not just a curve that uh, one could imagine that, okay, when you're very close to an object, you're going to have some sort of overdensity there because you have a, a, a potential well, we have gravity, and then this gravity, the, 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 the further you go from this object, um, this overdensity may fall a little bit because you're going away from this potential well. Uh, you actually see that there is a, a bump at some point in a very specific scale. So you have an, uh, a bump of overdensity in a scale that actually is telling us about um, the what we can call the cosmic sound. Uh, so we call this the uh, baryonic acoustic oscillation. This is an imprint that comes all the way from, from the Big Bang. So from those fluctuations that we talked about earlier, 
uh, during those fluctuations. Uh, so uh, right after the Big Bang, we had this cosmic soup that everything was there together. Photons, uh, dark matter, uh, baryonic matter, like uh, ions, and, um, um, and then they started to cool down until the first light was emitted. And in the very beginning, everything was all together. At some point, things started to move away and... Uh, I think this is great. You you brought us all the way up to the whole thing. So if you like, uh, I can I can I can continue because you did you did such a wonderful job here, right? What you're saying is, look, early on, everything was hot, dense, ionized, and expanding. And sure, you have matter and radiation. Radiation exerts an outward pressure on the matter wherever it gets over dense, but the matter tries to gravitationally collapse. And there's this interplay of matter and radiation that, you know, as gravitational collapse occurs in this plasma, um, photons stream out of the region and that lowers the energy density and, and things gravitate less and sort of drift apart. And so you get these oscillations because things overshoot equilibrium some the matter gravitates in the photons stream out the matter goes out the photons stream in and you get this oscillation but on top of that you also have two types of matter you have dark matter and you have normal matter and normal matter made of protons and electrons among other things is coupled to the photons photons are electromagnetic radiation. So where you have charged particles, and especially where you have electrons, uh, you get sort of this different interaction between the radiation and the normal matter than you do with the uncharged dark matter. So what this means overall is you're going to see this big overall effect of dark matter and how it interacts with radiation, but superimposed on top of that you have this baryonic signal, this signal of the charged matter. So when you finally make neutral atoms and the cosmic microwave background streams away and, and free streams to us, and we can see it today as it's, you know, red shifted down to just about three degrees above absolute zero, uh, we see, oh, but that little imprint of those peaks and valleys in the cosmic microwave background, those acoustic peaks, uh, those are actually going to show up because where you have the big over densities, that leads to big formation of structure. So when you do exactly what you said and you put your finger down on a galaxy today and you draw a circle or a spherical shell of 100 million light years or 200 or 300 or 400, 500, 600, etc. million light years around it, you can ask, how likely am I to encounter another galaxy this specific distance away from my own? And because of these oscillatory or acoustic features, you find that you're more likely to have a galaxy that's about 500 million light years away than you are to have one either 400 or 600 million light years away. And what's remarkable about that cosmic scale today and where you're more likely to find a galaxy than not is that it scales with the expansion of the universe. So if you go back and look at a redshift of one where the universe was only half the size that it is today, you find that that acoustic peak is at 
250 million light years because it's half of that 500 million light years it is today. And if you go back to a redshift of four, uh, you find that that acoustic scale is just 100 million light years and you're more likely to find a galaxy 100 million light years away from another than you are to find one 80 or 120 million light years away from each other. So this is a technique that not only measures how galaxies cluster together all throughout the history of the universe, but we can use this to sort of test what the universe is made of and what the different ratios of matter and baryonic matter and dark matter and radiation are to one another. So this is an impressively powerful cosmic probe. Exactly. And there is something very cool about uh, that connects everything that we've been talking about, which is uh, when we do the these two point correlation function that we talked about. Um, and let's say uh, there, there is some, some very nice statistical way of looking at this. Also, when we take the Fourier transform of this two point correlation function, we get what we call the power spectrum. And this power spectrum is something that we use everywhere in cosmology to understand about uh, to, uh, to understand about these cosmological parameters. And with this power spectrum that we can get from the galaxies, we can get from the, uh, the, the, the supernovae, we can get from different things. Um, the sigma eight that I talked about earlier is actually directly related to the amplitude of this power spectrum. So when we are looking at these different observables, we are also trying to look at uh, fr from different perspectives to the same kind of um, cosmological parameters that we want to constrain to understand our universe. So I would just like to put, make this bridge between everything that we've been talking about and um, there are many other parameters that uh, we can constrain, uh, basically uh, also basing ourselves on the cosmic microwave background and other things. But everything in the end is uh, we are trying to look at these structures, seeing how correlated they are, and trying to understand about the evolution of the universe based on this. And that's really fascinating uh, for the two-point function. But that's just looking at one galaxy relative to another. And sure, you can do this for all pairs of galaxies in the universe uh, over a given volume and map them all out and sort of reconstruct this map of what's the amplitude and relative amplitude of all the different, you know, correlations that we do and don't see in the universe. But you can go beyond that as well because there's more information contained in the three-point function like how do trios of galaxies or a pair with a single object, how do they correlate? And then you can sort of go ahead to even higher functions like four point, five point, six point functions and say, okay, well, how do pairs of pairs of galaxies interact with one another? And when we look at the three point function, we have to sort of subtract out the two point function between one and two, between one and three, and between two and three in any trio we look at. And so extracting information about the three-point or higher-point correlation functions has that ability to give us even more information about the universe, but we also have to be careful because 
any uncertainties in any earlier correlation functions, just like any uncertainty in the position of a galaxy will affect the two-point function, any uncertainties in either the position of the galaxy or the two-point function is going to affect what you infer from the three-point function. And I know that the community is very split on this. There are some people who are drawing remarkable and claiming very significant conclusions about the universe within the three-point and four-point functions, and there are other people who are extremely skeptical of these results and think, you know, this is something that is, you know, certainly going to become a part of 21st century science, but we haven't reduced the uncertainties on even the one-point or two-point functions well enough to draw robust conclusions about three-point or higher functions and what they teach us about the universe. Uh, do you have any thoughts on, on that sort of aspect of things? Yeah, I think this is a, a complicated, uh, maybe a complex question because uh, the way I see it is that we, we did reach... Um, a very, a very like a point in cosmology that we can call precision cosmology, right? So we accomplished a lot in the past decades, and we do understand so much more about our universe than um, than we did um, decades ago, um, and we did reach a point at which we need to expand our horizons to. Uh, to try to understand more and more about things. So there is a lot of systematics involved. There is a lot of uh, uh, things that we may not even know that they could um, cause some misunderstandings or errors or noise in our data, right? So things are not so clear all the time. However, I do think that we should continue pushing in many different directions and trying to make things converge at some point, you know? And I say that also because I, uh, if we do end up talking about the work that I've been doing right now, I'm also gonna touch on this point again, because, um, so for example, I work on uh, cosmological simulations now, um, and in cosmological simulations, there is a lot of uncertainties. There's a lot of things that come into play that we don't actually understand quite well yet, so this is something that is brought up all the time. Like, how can we draw conclusions from the simulations if, if we're not 100% sure of all the parameters that go inside of them? So uh, this is something that I've, I've been thinking a lot about in the past years. And I do think that for, the, for, the, um, for all different fields in cosmology right now, this is a little bit true because we pushed a lot on uh, what we can do with more, let's say, certainty, I don't know. But uh, now we are trying to explore and trying to see uh, things in different ways, right? So I do think it's a robust um, technique, uh, the three-point collation function and even pushing for four-point collation function and point collation functions. Uh, but yeah, we, we, I think we need to also keep working on other fronts to keep reducing our errors and everything that comes in this analysis. 
And I think I think that's a really good point too. Both because from an observational perspective, and and having work on observation, I'm sure you might know this even better than I do. There is that big problem and puzzle of systematic errors, right? When you when you start to identify, well, what are my sources of error? What are my sources of uncertainty? What are the things that could possibly be going on that would bias my results in one direction or another? Um, you list all the ones you can and you quantify all the ones you can think of and you and you do your absolute best to sort of pin them all down and quantify them and take them all into account and then at the end of it you come up with okay well here's what we see and here's where we see it and here's what the errors are and as the observer yourself you're keenly aware of oh, what did I ignore? What did I say I don't think this matters? And how did I model these things that I do think matters? And, um, you know, you're fully aware that even in your estimates of the uncertainty, there are uncertainties. And because you omitted certain things in your analysis, you, you're aware of what did I omit? And sure, I have a justification for it, but is it correct? Um, but once you move on past that, once you publish your data, everyone else is not going to do that analysis. Everyone else is just going to take your data as you published it and treat it as, oh, well, these are the numbers and these are the observations and these are the uncertainties on them. And here's what conclusions we can draw about the universe. And I think that's why it's so important before we draw big, grand, sweeping conclusions about what the universe is like that we get multiple independent lines of evidence that can all back up the same picture. Because if all you have is one type of observation, even if you've got your statistical errors down really good and you think you understand your systematics really well, there's always that possibility that, oh, I forgot about evolution. Oh, I forgot about dust. Oh, I forgot about magnetic fields. Oh, they're actually important, right? It's it's really possible that, you know, you could be drawing a very premature conclusion. And in a field where there's often a race to be first, um, you know, I as a science reporter now, I see lots of examples where I'm like, oh, well, that's oversold or, oh, that's a very preliminary claim. And why why are people reporting it so uncritically? Um, is this something you see too? Yeah, I think it's, uh, you touch a very good point. Um, I do think that we should continue pushing uh, to, <laughs> Um, to do many different kinds of analysis and uh, not being too perfectionist in everything that we do. I, I do have this opinion, but at the same time, I also do agree with you. And I think it's very, very important that we are able to um, express and put in the papers or the papers that we publish and uh, even when it goes to um, to uh, to the media or press release and everything, the assumptions that were made and the the things that we are actually considering uh, as being uncertain so far, right? And not everybody, uh, not everybody takes some time to do this kind of okay. Let's step back and see what are we what we are doing here. Does this uh, does this actually make sense and can we actually do this with this 
level of certainty or not. So I think it's important and it's important to be clear in our papers. But I, I still think that we have to keep doing it, you know, and not being so perfectionist because and I say that because I took a class in um, in uh, at UF at my university, one of the best classes that I've ever taken, and it was about classical papers. So every week we used to read a paper like classical, so beginning of um, 20th century, and I don't know papers that are actually that actually built ev like everything that we know now built up from them and about dark matter about uh, uh, relative general relativity and things like that and i saw a lot of papers that were very like speculative and okay it was biased because we are, were actually picking the papers that actually gave some results <laughs> and now they make sense but at the same time looking at them i was like Oh my God, this person had no idea, but they were just like, okay, maybe this is a dark matter. Maybe this is a matter that we cannot see. Maybe this is a, and, and very much like, uh, not actually trying to be too perfectionist and like, okay, I need to have much more results to publish this. So I think it's a, we need to find this balance, right? And because I completely, completely agree with you that we cannot just publish things and expect people to um, to know what is behind our claims, right? But we need to be clear in saying what the assumptions were. Uh, but I wouldn't say that I, I would stop this flow of publications. That's what I, I mean, you know, um, because it's also not good when you keep it and don't don't show to the world, you know. So. I don't know. What do you think about that? I think that's great, actually. You're talking about finding a balance, right? You're talking about having a healthy perspective where you're saying, look, we should encourage uh, doing the best you can with the data you have and looking just over the horizon to what might be possible next. And we should even encourage speculation about some of the more wild interpretations of what this data can mean. You know, you, you can't talk everything up to, oh, well, well, we have errors, so we can't say anything. Like, no, say, say your thing about what you think it is. Just, you know, you want to be balanced about it. You want to be appropriately balanced about it. You don't want to oversell your results results, but you also don't want to just sit on something because it's not good enough. In fact, uh, you might know that the person who measured the first parallax was Bessel, uh, that Bessel measured the parallax of a star that's about 10 light years away, um, and, and that, you know, he did this by looking at its apparent motion over the course of the year, and as Earth's on one side of the sun and goes to the other and then comes back, you can actually see how that apparent position of the star appears to change. But what most people don't know is that there was another astronomer named Henderson who got results for Alpha Centauri because he was in the Southern Hemisphere years before Bessel published his parallax. But Henderson didn't, he wasn't certain 
that that was right. So he sat on his results and waited for someone else to publish parallax data before he published his much larger parallax measurements of Alpha Centauri. So sometimes, and, and if you say like Henderson, like what's even his first name? Uh, because we don't remember that. That's not remarkable to be the second or third person to discover a thing. So so sometimes you should be bold, but, but don't be so bold that you start making completely untenable claims. Yeah, and I don't mean, I don't mean, uh, when I say that you should publish, I don't mean in the egocentric way, you know, of, of like, oh, I need to be the first one to publish. I mean, in the, in the sense of like, um, of putting the what you know out there somehow so that other people can look at that and say okay maybe i can do something with this and or maybe maybe i can even refute this you know so it's just like the the flow of the knowledge or or whatever so you're putting your ideas out there you know yeah and i think this is important because usually if you have an idea um like sometimes, very rarely, you'll have an idea that no one else has ever had before. But usually if you have an idea because something is just kind of within reach or is almost within reach, other people are probably thinking about these same issues too. And putting that out there in the literature to generate community discussion is valuable in its own right. And I think that's actually very interesting because that's sort of what's happening with this new emerging, uh, I'll say, approach to survey the universe that you're working on when you talked about your simulations that you're doing, uh, this is all about what's called line intensity mapping. And this is sort of a brand new approach uh, because, because previously um, we haven't had the technology or sensitivity to even be able to think about doing this. Um, you know, the only exception was people talked about doing it for... Um, for the 21 centimeter hydrogen spin flip transition. But now people are talking about doing this for, for shorter wavelength transitions, for much less uh, hyperfine structure transitions. And by using it to say, look, if we're gonna start looking at regions of sky and want to see things beyond where we can see galaxies, where we can see individual galaxies, maybe what we can do is we can look at the total spectral line emissions from both galaxies and the intergalactic medium together over some region of space and say, how intense is this energy coming from beyond where we could even say, oh, it's coming from this galaxy. What if we look at a bigger region and we could still tease out these atomic, ionic, or molecular features? Um, can you tell us about line intensity mapping and why it just might be sort of a new fruitful approach to doing astronomy? Yes, line intensity mapping is my new baby now. <laughs> so I've been working a lot on it. Um, and what I do is I model line intensity mapping. And I can talk about the modeling later. But right now I'm just going to um, expand on what you uh, you already said very nicely. Uh, we, this is a technique that is going to help us understand both cosmology, as we've been talking uh, so far, and also a lot of astrophysical parameters that we don't know um, so well about uh, in, the, in the very early universe. So, for example, one thing that we are not that we don't understand exactly 
uh, how happened is how the universe became reionized, right? So uh, what happened was uh, the big, uh, the, the right after the Big Bang, we had that cosmic soup. And at some point, so everything was there together, photons, dark matter, matter, everything um, in this cosmic soup until it cooled down to some point that photons were free to go out because recombination occurred. So the, the first uh, hydrogens were formed and light was free to go. So, and that's why we see the cosmic microwave background was the first light that was actually free to come to our eyes. And uh, we see that cosmic microwave background, but right after that, the universe was fully just neutral. So the universe just had like hydrogen, atomic hydrogen everywhere. Nothing was happening. We didn't have stars, we didn't have galaxies, we didn't have anything in the universe at that time, just hydrogen. Um, and at some point, the, the, those fluctuations that we talked about today um, started to make things uh, matter and um, uh, the, the potential wells becoming more and more overdense until we started having the formation of uh, stars and then galaxies. And these stars, these first stars and galaxies, they started to reionize the environment because they started to make uh, the, the medium around them not being so neutral anymore. And so there was these big bubbles that were formed around them. And at some point, these big bubbles started to intersect with each other. And at some point, the whole universe was reionized. Um, uh, and this is, this is an epoch of the universe that we don't quite understand how fast it happened. So it means we don't know how fast the first stars were formed, how fast the first galaxies came, and how it happened exactly. So this is something that we want to study. But we are just, just looking at galaxies we don't have a very good idea of this and we don't have a very good idea idea of um how the star formation history of the universe um was at that time also in the very beginning of the universe in um very early stages so this is something that this technique is going to help us because we are not going to be targeting specific galaxies, but we are going to be trying to make maps of the these large scale structures that we've been also talking a lot about, um, but focusing on specific lines. So we know that there are some lines that are very strong. So for example, CO lines, uh, some lines based on carbon and some other lines based on oxygen and also some hydrogen lines uh, that we look in the telescope. So we are kind of making maps of these specific lines that actually show the, the, the large scale structure, but in different times of the universe. Because of the redshift, the, these line transitions happen in different uh, wavelengths for different times of the universe. Let me ask then, uh, is this, can I conceive of this as sort of a reverse of the Lyman Alpha Forest, right? A Lyman Alpha Forest is what happens when you have a, a bright source of light, like a quasar or an active galaxy at some large distance, but then you have clouds of neutral matter, like neutral hydrogen in front of it. And so as that matter, as that light, sorry, as that light 
from the distant object passes through this cloud of matter, you're going to get an absorption feature dependent on how much neutral hydrogen there is imprinted at that specific wavelength. And then your light travels through the universe and it redshifts more and it travels through the next cloud and you get another absorption line. And then you get more and more and more. And by time this light arrives at your eyes, you have what we call a forest of these absorption features in it because the background light has been doing it. It sounds like line intensity mapping is the reverse of that, where you say, look, the universe is too opaque early on for us to see things. You, you have too much neutral matter. All that neutral matter that we made at the time the cosmic microwave background was released, that's great because the universe then becomes transparent to that wavelength of light. But as you make these denser clouds of matter, as you get gravitational collapse and you get denser clumps, you're gonna start forming stars, but that starlight is all gonna get absorbed or extincted by the material around it. So before we can see that starlight, before even like the last most distant galaxy that the James Webb Space Telescope will ever be able to see, you still have oh, we had stars forming there. Um, but you'll be able to see it because the ultraviolet light from those stars excited the hydrogen atoms around them. And those hydrogen atoms will emit a series of light or those ionized hydrogen atoms will emit a series of light. And so will the helium. And then once you form those first heavy elements like carbon and oxygen, you'll start to see the lines from carbon and oxygen too. And again, at all different redshifts. So if you can look along a, I'm thinking like a pencil beam line of sight in a bunch of different directions, you'll be able to say, oh, this gives me a chance to probe the early reionization history of the universe back when things were only 50% reionized or maybe 10% reionized, right? You can get all of those different historical imprints from beyond where we can actually resolve individual galaxies. Is that is that the big idea and hope of line intensity mapping that you can sort of make this uh, line of sight map of how neutral or reionized or full of energetic bursts of star formation the universe is along any line of sight you look at? Yeah, exactly. And uh, the cool thing about this is that you, uh, we end up uh, having a better idea of the structures of the universe because since we're not trying to target specific galaxies, we don't have a cut. Um, so uh, when we look at the sky and we point our telescope at a specific um, field of the sky, um, you can imagine that you're not going to observe all the galaxies that there is in that direction, right? Because you you are not able to observe the, the fainter galaxies in very high redshifts. Um, however, if you're just trying to detect all the integrated lines that that you that you talked about um, we can actually not trying not try, uh, we are not going to see resolved objects but we are going to have a better idea of the density field in that region so doing line intensity mapping i like to do this analogy it's not uh, a very it, it's not a direct uh, mapping of things, but it's something that helped me understand 
also uh, how line intensity mapping um, will help us in cosmology, which is, you can imagine that we are trying to make maps such as the cosmic microwave background, but in, in different times of the universe. So we're gonna try to look at those over densities in different times of the universe. But for the cosmic microwave background, we had a very clear uh, temperature uh, wavelength that we needed to observe and we could point at all the different uh, directions of the sky and have that nice map of the cosmic microwave background. For line intensity mapping, we, uh, we try to also look at uh, large fields, which is also one advantage compared to JWST, for example. Uh, another advantage compared to JWST, because this is something that, uh, this is a question that also comes up very much like, oh, but JWST is gonna be, is being able to observe very, very high redshift galaxies, galaxies from the very early universe. Yes, but JWST has a limited field of view. And uh, so to do cosmology, we need higher, like very large uh, field and to do statistics, right? And also JWST, uh can only see the very bright galaxies right uh even though um it has a a much better uh sensitivity that we had before uh we can still like we're not going to be able to see the super faint objects from that time and we believe that the super faint objects uh, which are probably numerous at that time, were actually very important in this process of reionizing the universe. Right, right. So, so when I said pencil beam, that was incorrect. You're really casting a much wider net when you do line intensity mapping, because like you say, we don't think it was the brightest, most luminous galaxies, which is which is what observatories like JWST are most sensitive to, that are primarily responsible for reionizing the universe. What what we can say is it's probably the more common, more abundant, but lower mass galaxies that are responsible for it. They're just so much greater in number, but that makes them extremely difficult to find unless you have like a huge enhancement of this galaxy's brightness from like gravitational lensing, which is purely a serendipitous occurrence when it happens, uh, you're not going to be able to see these objects individually. But if you look at a broad region of sky, uh, you're not trying to look for like, what's the individual like fingerprint of one galaxy. But it's more like if you see like a large like oh like if we look at this region of sky in this little redshift bin uh then we can see aggregate there is a signature from hydrogen atoms and there is a signature from carbon and there is a signature from oxygen and there is a signature from helium and when we add all these signatures up we can learn something about what is the universe like on average at this very early time beyond where we can resolve individual objects, individual stars, and and that we can do it in a way that's completely independent from these other small-scale observations. Exactly. Exactly. When you said pencil beam, I was uh, thinking another thing. I thought you were like saying that we're pointing uh, a different direction. So I interpreted that as like 
okay, so you are doing pencil being, but you're at the same time going different directions. So in the end, you're going to have a, a larger field. But yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you want to you want to look with like a wide field view, more like uh, more like you'd get from a pair of binoculars than you'd get from like a a very narrow telescope view. Exactly. We, uh, in cosmology, this is very, very important so that we can do all these kind of things that we talked about, uh, the two-point relation functions, the power spectrum, and again, doing this kind of observations from line intensity mapping, we can have a power spectrum that is based on the luminosity that we're getting from these different signatures, right? Um, and from that, if we know how to model it, so to go from um, um, a power spectrum of a luminosity to what it means in terms of the matter power spectrum, then we can actually understand about cosmology, we, uh, right? So, but we need to do this kind of modeling. We need to be able to look at these um, at these uh, over densities, these maps, and go from that of uh, uh, which is showing us how the luminosity uh, changes. Uh, with position um, and and make and make this mapping to how what can we interpret about the uh, matter distribution of the universe? Interesting, because what I understand is that we're still in the era where 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 the missions we're talking about and the ob observatories we're talking about are. I guess what I'd call in the Pathfinder era, like we had the Lisa Pathfinder mission and we had the first rover on Mars was the Pathfinder uh, mission. Um, this is basically like proof of concept territory. Like we we are still in the thing where we're like, huh, well, can we detect these emission lines over large volumes of space? And can we get them above the noise floor? And can we robustly detect the magnitude of this at a specific re uh, redshift? Because we're not really at the stage where we've demonstrated the robustness of this technology uh, to, to give us like science results at this point. We're still in that, hey, can we do this? What do we need to do this? What what instruments and telescopes and uh, types of observatories do we need to reveal this information? And what wavelengths should we be looking in? Um, this is this is still very challenging, very early days stuff. Um, so let me ask you, what is it like to be doing the theory so far out in advance of when we're actually going to get usable scientific data. I think this is this is a part of the scientific process that people who don't work in it don't really have an appreciation for. Can you tell us what it's like to to be working on the theory of this when the theory is so far ahead of where the observations are? Yeah, for sure. And I think there are uh, different things about um, uh, being in the early stages of, um, of these emerging techniques, let's say. Um, so uh, first of all, we know that we're going to be able to do some things. And, and that's why the experiments that we have that, um, that already had some measurements and some other ones uh, which are coming up, 
that's why we had, I guess, the money to build them. <laughs> so uh, there are some things that we are going to be able. So, for example, something that we would really like to have is called luminosity functions, which touch upon what I said before of uh, trying to understand um, how the how much the smaller, the fainter objects um, contributed to the evolutionary history of the universe, or not the evolution, but the, the, the formation of structures and how the universe was reionized and how things uh, came to be how they are, right? And this is one thing. And But when we're talking about cosmology itself, for example, I'm going to give an example that we talked about today, uh, the baryonic acoustic oscillations, right? This is something that we think about doing line intensity mapping to see that feature that uh, that bump in the the power spectrum uh, to understand about the the large scale structure and constraint um, cosmology, uh, but this is something that is a little more far away for line intensity mapping experiments. This is something that we are we are still analyzing and uh, doing some modeling and. Uh, trying to understand if you're going to be able to do that in the future. So I think there is there are things that we, we know we're going to be able to do. There are things that we, we are not so sure. And I think it's exciting to be in a field that is actually like a baby field, you know, because we see it, uh, you, you can actually see it growing and you can see how things work in science in general, right? Like. It's all a little messy, but we keep pushing and we keep um, trying to, I mean, we're never going to have certainties like for, uh, we, we can, we have to, as we talked before, we need to be aware of the assumptions that we make of the, um, of the uncertainty that we know exist, but we cannot be afraid of trying to push to have these, um, um, new techniques that are going to help us understand better our universe. So, yeah. No, and I love that this is an entirely new line of evidence that will complement all the other lines of evidence we already have, because this is this is how you build up a coherent picture. If you have one relatively weak line of evidence that supports a wild conclusion, you're not going to believe it. But if you have like six or seven completely independent lines of evidence, even if none of them are extremely strong and robust on their own, you start to believe it if they all point towards the same conclusion. And uh, I think... I think adding a new method of doing business to our arsenal and our toolkit is really only going to lead to a more cohesive picture of how this universe grew up. I also know, uh, Carolina, that one of the things you've been really passionate about since I've known you is science outreach. I know that you were part of the Ad Astra Academy team, which is sort of a global outreach project to provide uh, people in sort of uh, poorer and underserved areas with a really high quality education and opportunity to get involved in cutting edge science projects, and that you also coordinate uh, the AstroTubers YouTube channel, and you've been doing that for I think six years now. Would you would you like to tell us about your passion for outreach and and what 
you think is so important about doing science outreach and about scientists doing outreach into a variety of different communities? For sure, yes. Outreach is uh, one of my big passions. And um, um, I, I've been involved in the Ad Astra Academy uh, outreach program. We went to favelas in Rio de Janeiro, uh, bringing science uh, to kids uh, and teenagers. It was such a nice project. They, um, it, it actually motivates me every day to, to do what I'm doing, you know, to, uh, to bring these sparkle in uh, kids' eyes about science. And something that I've been involved since 2017 is in this YouTube channel that I have with some friends in Brazil, uh, which are also astronomers, which is called AstroTubers. Uh, we, uh, we have this YouTube channel, which is unfortunately in Portuguese. Not unfortunately, but I'm just, um, uh, not everybody <laughs> will be able to watch it. Some of them I translated to English. Some of them I didn't have the time. Unfortunately, we are all uh, just researchers trying to um, manage our times to do research and and uh, having the YouTube channel at the same time. Uh, but this is something that uh, we really enjoy and we have like weekly live streams, uh, videos every week. So yeah, this is something that I'm also very proud of. <laughs> no, and I know for you, um, you know, listen, it's really kind of unfortunate in a way because science, I think, is a universal language. If, if we were to lose every bit of scientific knowledge we had at the present day, if all of it were going to get lost, like maybe it did in the Library of Alexandria fire uh, some 1,500 years ago, uh, we would be able to reconstruct it all because we could go out and do the same experiments that have been done historically, and we would draw the same conclusions about the universe as soon as we rediscovered all of those things. Because science is kind of universal in how it proceeds. You interrogate the universe by asking it questions about itself. And from the answers it gives you, you draw conclusions about empirical reality. But humans don't have a universal language. A lot of science is done in English, but people all over the world, not everyone speaks English. Not everyone has access to that. I know you were born in California. You grew up and had your education mostly in Brazil, uh, but you also speak not only Portuguese, but you speak English. You have a totally proficient conversation in Spanish, as I remember from this past January, uh, and you're actually physically in Germany right now where you speak German, and although you lament how you don't speak German as well as those other th three languages, uh, that you shouldn't underestimate the importance of putting science content out there in Portuguese, in a language where there might not be a whole lot of science content for non-English speaking children, because there are plenty of people who know their native tongue, and that's pretty much it. And I think what you're doing is actually opening up a whole new universe of opportunity by providing this information and this awareness and this excitement of what science is and how people can be a part of it just by doing what you're doing. And I also think you're doing a huge service to young people out there who are growing up in Brazil who maybe 
look like you and talk like you and don't view themselves as scientists yet, uh, seeing you could be providing a very important role model for them in ways that you might not think about on a day-to-day basis. Oh, for sure, for sure. Like I first talking about the the Portuguese, um, uh, the 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 language that I use in my channel, right? I think this is extremely important, and and it's one of my goals uh, to bring the uh, the little that I know about science to people in the country that I grew up, right? So for sure, this is I agree with you um, that this is extremely important. And one of the things that I that really motivates me is also uh, what you mentioned about um, even though I, I don't think I'm that good of an example, <laughs> but I try to bring this example of being a scientist woman that doesn't fit in all the stereotypes that a person may think of a scientist, right? So I, I think this is... I think I have two main goals when I do outreach, actually three. Um, the first one is to uh, show that science is not um, just something unreachable, right? So, and showing that, and not only showing what we know about science, but showing how can we ask questions about our world all the time and how can we fight fake news and things like this, right? Like, so it's not only bringing, uh, okay, we know the size of, our, of the sun, we, we know the size of our galaxy, we know this and this about cosmology. No, it's like, okay, let's think about this. How do we have a critical thinking about things, right? The other thing that I think it's very important is to bring this um, notion of like, okay, I can also be a scientist, right? For um, especially women, uh, Brazilian, <laughs> so, but for everybody, like bringing this sense of, okay, I'm a super normal person, I'm not super smart, but I'm here doing science, right? And the third thing is that I think it's very important that we show to our society the work that we're doing because we really want everybody by our side in science. So we can have resources and we can continue doing what we're doing so it's not like just um this is a very important thing to do because we do because sometimes we complain that oh people don't don't like science or people don't but they sometimes they don't understand sometimes they want to understand but we need to communicate this right so that's the my three main goals when i do outreach I think that's super wonderful. And I also think it's a great reminder of something that I heard relatively recently that's that stuck with me, which is that, you know, human beings and what we do, we aren't great because we were born great. We were born with all this knowledge and all of these gifts, but we're great because we can improve ourselves. And I think you are not only a living example of you know, look at all these things you've learned and look at all this thing, all these great things you've become and how knowledgeable you've become. But now you're already at such a young age um, 
bringing that back to other people who were maybe in the same situation that you were 10 or 15 or 20 years ago and saying, I want you to see the opportunities that might have looked almost out of reach to me when I was younger and and just bring it to them. I I think that's absolutely fantastic. Uh, Carolina, this has been a super fascinating discussion, and I'm so glad we've had you on. And I'd like to ask you, before we bring this program to a close, if you have any final thoughts for our listeners out there. Yeah, so I think my final thoughts would actually be on these lines of... um, um, actually what we were talking about right now of how science should be something that we all enjoy and also something that um, instigates our curiosity about the world and i would motivate anybody that wants to pursue science not only as a career but also uh, to know more about science to do so because it's such a fascinating um, thing to do, um, and I would like to thank uh, you for the for the invite to, uh, for the opportunity to be here talking to. Um, I think this was my oh no, this was not my first podcast, but uh, the, my first podcast in English. See, oh, I'm very happy to be here. Yes, <laughs> um, and uh, I had a wonderful time. I learned a lot by talking to you about the things that I've done for the, like the things that I should know for the past couple of years, but at the same time I was learning as I was speaking. <laughs> so um, thank you so much for this opportunity. And uh, I think that's it. Well, you're very welcome. And uh, I think our listeners are all the richer for it. And I think probably you will be too in just a little bit when you start writing your thesis for synthesizing all these ideas together. So thank you, Carolina, for joining us. And thanks to all of you out there for listening and tuning in to this edition of Starts With a Bang. Uh, Starts With a Bang podcast, I'd like to acknowledge our sponsor, Avenues Online, a component of Avenues The World School. Learn more about them at avenues.org slash SWAB. And thanks to all of our Patreon supporters, without whom this podcast wouldn't be possible. I'd like to give an explicit shout out to everyone who donates to us at a $5 level a month and above. So thanks go to Chad Marler, Jeff Bonwick, Lady Chewist, Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, Tim Graham, Aaron Weiss, Chris Chikutas, John Methot, John Van Balaguyan, Matt Conroe, Pattern Ship, Pete Smoyer, Pierre Franson, Seagreen Mango, Stefan Berniger, William Blair, Amir Sosnick, Andy and Wall, Benish Tech, LLC, Brian Terry, David Charney, Flo, George Church, John Kozura, Joseph Dvorak, Kilia Opu, Mark Armstrong, Matt Glasser, Patrick Dennis, Pedro Teixeira, Rafael Wojcik, Randall Slimak, Rick DeWitt, Robert Thibodeau, Ron Schiffman, Sean Foley, Steve Guderian, Adam Robinson, Adrian Griffiths, Alan Parikh, Andres Chovanek, Arnulfo Zepeda, Ben Head, Bob Shire, Brainwise, Brett Minder, Cameron Sowards, Carl Iddings, Casey Haskins, Dan Steelen, Dana Bridges, David Hibbets, David Taschioni, David Wolf, Diana Nevins, Dick Pills, Dwayne Williams, Fraser Kane, Gabrielle Dadaire, Glenn McDavid, Ira Cohen, James Bryson Hyatt, James Nance, Jason Luttrell, Jason McCampbell, Javier Zazo, Jeff Renike, Kelly Kudrick, Lockwood Carlson, Mark Bergeron, Mark Bloor, Mark Langston, Michael Hall, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Nathan Hannon, Neil Flood, Owen Mann, Pam Harris, Paul Lester, Pavel Zuzelski, Philip Francis, Radek Nesbida, Rich Weigel, Richard Schwartz, Ron Lyle, Rushin Shah, Sam Herzakian, Steve Nordhoff, Stuart 
Blending, Tom Van Scotter, Tomas Alt, Tomas Walgren, Wayne Piekarski, Weller Tractor Salvage, William Vanden Heuvel, and Young Co. S. Thanks to all of you for tuning in, and we'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang. <laughs> <laughs>